Have you ever marveled at a sunset or a starry night sky and told yourself that this must be the work of a divine artist? I personally have, and if you have, then we are not alone, because for hundreds of years, Western philosophers and apologists have been arguing that the complexity and beauty we find in nature are evidence that the world and the universe are the product of a divine designer. In this episode, I'm going to explain what design arguments for God are and discuss three particular design arguments, so I hope you'll stick around and find out how design in nature points to God's existence. Welcome back, everyone. In this lecture, uh, I'm going to be talking about design arguments. Uh, we are moving on from cosmological arguments. In the last two lectures, we looked at uh, cosmological arguments, and in particular, I discussed the Kalam cosmological argument and showed you how it was defended. Well, similarly, I am going to now move into design arguments, and uh, and then I'm so in this lecture, I'm going to talk about three main types of design arguments after discussing what design arguments are and then in the next lecture I am going to look at a specific design argument out of those three to give you an idea of how these are defended and and how all that works so uh, yeah these design arguments are are uh, similar uh, to cosmological arguments in that they are trying to show that God must exist uh, these just do it in a different way. Now, before I start talking about these, I um, just want to stop and look at our uh, Bible passage for the next couple lectures. Uh, we're switching over to Romans 1, verse 20. And in uh, this verse says, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So yeah, this, uh, this verse comes from Paul's, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. He wrote this letter to the church at Rome around uh, 57, 58 AD. And the church consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. And in this chapter, or excuse me, in this yeah, in this chapter, he is talking about how the non-Jewish nations had no excuse for failing to glorify God because God's creation tells that He exists and tells a little bit about what He is like. Um, now, of course, this uh, passage would be relevant also to cosmological arguments. I just think this is an interesting passage. Uh, and and definitely pertinent to design arguments, um, you know, especially. So if you look at the the next verse, verse twenty one, I don't have it listed, but it says, "For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened." Um, so yeah, this I mean this next verse implies that the, the Gentiles knew that they ought to worship and thank God based on what they're seeing in creation, but they didn't. 
Um, and, you know, of course, you can't worship or thank something that isn't a person and lacks intelligence. And, and we all know that, you know, the Bible portrays God as a person. I just I think this this verse definitely is relevant to design arguments, right? Because it's saying that whenever you look out and create, when you look out at the world, um, you're supposed to not only know that God exists and know some things about God. Obviously, knowing that He is a His He's a personal being who created all this and is very powerful and and, and several other things, right? And um, so much so that you should know that it was all done for you and that you ought to worship this this God. Um, and 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 that's kind of what we're, we're going to be looking at, design arguments that show that whenever you look out in the world, you can tell that an intelligent um, being needs to be the explanation for what we see, okay? Uh, if, you, if you are using the reflection questions, if you're interested in these, I just have a couple for... Uh, for this lecture. So the first one is, do you think design arguments commit the God of the gaps fallacy? Um, and what about cosmological arguments as well? Uh, if you're not sure what the God of the gaps fallacy is, I'll, I'll be talking about it in the lecture. The uh, second question is, does fine-tuning in the universe increase the amount of faith needed to believe the universe began from uh, nothing uncaused? Why or why not? And uh, if that doesn't make sense right now, it, it, it should as we go along. So, so like I said, I'm going to be talking about design arguments in this lecture. And here I've got a uh, definition for what a design argument is. Uh, the definition says, The argument for God's existence based on the evidence of design in the world. Now this definition uh, says the argument, but really the design argument is a family of arguments. So... So it really should say arguments for God's existence based on the evidence of design in the world. But that's basically what these are, right? Um, and, and three uh, major design arguments in my mind come from Thomas Aquinas, uh, William Paley, and William Lane Craig. So I was these are the three uh, design arguments that I will be discussing in this lecture. Now, uh, if, if you know much about Aquinas... Um, some people might cringe if I call Aquinas' uh, argument a design argument, uh, but I'll explain why that is here in a second. But yes, uh, Thomas Aquinas, I've mentioned him before, uh, Italian Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher from uh, the medieval period. Um, he has, as I've also explained before, uh, he's famous for his uh, what is known as his five ways. Uh, many of the five ways are cosmological arguments for God's existence. But his fifth way uh, is called the proof from finality. And it uses the concept of uh, uh, Aristotle's concept of final causes um, to, to argue that uh, God exists and is causing everything in the universe to, um, to move towards its its purpose. To explain what Aquinas is getting at with his fifth way, it, it really is necessary to explain uh, Aristotelian metaphysics a little bit. Um, I think I've said a little bit about this in the lecture on cosmological arguments, but I'll just I'll just mention everything all over again. But as you see here, um, his argument. So this isn't exactly the way Aquinas wrote it in his writings. 
But this is a reformulation of his argument that I think does a good job at capturing what he said or what he meant to be saying. So it's got two premises and a conclusion. The first premise says, If a means is directed to an end, it is only because of an intelligent cause. Two, there are objects in nature that lack intelligence but are means directed to ends. Three, therefore, nature is the result of an intelligent cause. Uh, now, just to explain, so, um, like I said, Aquinas is using Aristotle's um, uh, understanding of the four causes. Um, uh, excuse me, Aristotle talked about uh, substances in reality having four causes, or maybe a better way of thinking of it is four explanations. Uh, Aristotle talked about uh, things having a material, a formal, an efficient, and a final cause. Okay, The material cause of something is what it's made of, uh, and that determines what it can turn into. Uh, the formal cause of something is its form or, or its essence, what just what it is. And uh, efficient cause of something is all... It, it, efficient causality is similar to what we looked at in cosmological arguments. If something... Uh, if something begins to exist, it's because of efficient causes a lot of times. Uh, things outside of itself, the, the processes that are happening to, to cause it to begin to exist. Uh, and then the final cause of something is, uh, is its purpose. Now, uh, Aristotle is an ancient Greek philosopher. And whenever I talk about how he thought that things in nature have a purpose... It might sound like he's an intelligent design theorist or, or something like that. Uh, but that's not what he was getting at. Uh, what he is getting at is known as intrinsic teleology. And in fact, that's that's what I would actually classify Aquinas' argument as. I wouldn't really classify it as a design argument as much as I'd classify his fifth way as a teleological argument because it uses intrinsic teleology instead of this idea of like external design to argue for God. But what Aquinas is saying, oh, well, just to say a little bit more about Aristotle. So, um, you know, just to give you an example of a final causality, take, a, take an acorn, for example. Uh, acorns always grow into oak trees if they're unimpeded, right? If you give an acorn enough uh, soil and water, and nutrients and, and sunlight, it's going to grow into an oak tree. Uh, now, Aristotle thought this was striking, um, but it, 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 it will make sense. Like, uh, why would it be uh, striking to him that acorns always grow into oak trees? The reason is has to do with um, all the different other metaphysical theories going around at the time. Uh, a, a major metaphysical theory on what is happening in nature uh, was from the atomists, the ancient atomists, the school of atomism. Atomists believed that um, to the explanation for every all the substances in reality, uh, everything in reality can be explained in terms of um, these atoms uh, that come together in different configurations. The atomists believe that reality is explainable by an infinite number of atoms in this infinite void. And the atoms are always, they're just basically going in random directions. They're eternally in motion because there's no resting place for them. 
And uh, the atoms had different shapes and sizes, but they didn't have things like smell and taste and color and things like that. Um, but whenever you put the atoms in different configurations, that's, that's just how we got everything in nature and everything in the world. But having said that, um, Aristotle thought, well, if everything is just, if, all the, if everything's explainable by these atoms just going in all these random directions and eternally in motion, then it seems strange. Uh, it seems like it, that everything would be a lot more random. Like, why would an oak tree, excuse me, why would an acorn always grow into an oak tree if an acorn is just a random collection of atoms? Um, and these atoms are randomly, eternally in motion, right? How come a, an acorn always grows into an oak tree? Why doesn't it pop into popcorn or, or start um, playing, uh, playing music or, or change colors all of a sudden or, or just or explode or, or just go in and out of existence? Why does it always do the same thing? And Aristotle thought that there, there must have been something that's aiming the acorn towards that form of the oak tree. Um, and it's not just that, like just the, like the everyday motions of the planets, um, and and other things, they, there's regularity where it does the same thing over and over. And that was striking to Aristotle because of the other, um, the other views back in that day. If everything was random like that, then you wouldn't think that nature would be so regular. So he thought that, um, since, and this is what, this is what Aquinas is saying. Aquinas is saying since there are things in nature that aim towards um, a certain form, but the form is is obviously not in them. Like for example, so an acorn um, is is going to turn into an oak tree, but if the form of an oak tree were in the acorn, the acorn would just be an oak tree. Um, but it's not an it's not an oak tree yet, right? So it's aiming towards that form. The form has to be somewhere, and it and the acorn doesn't know. The acorn doesn't know anything, right? So it doesn't know what it's doing. Something has to be guiding it to that, uh, to the, to to become an oak tree. And and Aquinas argues that uh, since it's obviously no other intelligent being in the universe, it has to be. And intelligence. There's a lot more to this argument than that, but that's basically his uh, his thinking on this. The form of the oak tree has to be somewhere, and he Aquinas believes it has to be in the mind of God, and God has to be directing natural objects to their telos at every moment. Um, otherwise, um, everything would be random, and if God quit willing things to go to their natural ends. Uh, but but yeah, the, his fifth way in, includes the idea of uh, intrinsic teleology, not not design like we would think of, like a table being designed where it's it's unnaturally put together and its and its purpose is given from outside. Aquinas is talking about how everything in nature naturally uh, is aimed at, at the same end over and over, and it doesn't just look random. Okay, now. Uh, moving on from that, and you know, just like the rest of Aquinas' five ways, I'd need to explain a lot more for everyone to fully understand it. But that was the basic idea. But yeah, moving on from Aquinas' uh, argument, there's uh, William Paley's watchmaker argument, and this is probably one of the most famous design arguments. That's why I wanted to mention it. 
mention it, uh, but not only because it's famous, but because uh, it, I believe it's making a bit of a comeback. If you're familiar with William Paley, uh, he was a British Anglican philosopher and priest. He wrote a work called uh, Natural Theology, which actually was a uh, required reading at Cambridge for a good handful of years. Um, but yeah, William Paley is writing around this time in the uh, late 1700s, and um, his argument is called uh, the watchmaker argument because he used a an analogy involving a watch. Now, um, usually people uh, read his quote whenever they, because you can just uh, easily find the, his quote from Natural Theology on the internet. But I just thought it was a little too much to read for for a slide. So I have a reformulation of his argument um, uh, that's from Fazal Rana and Fazal Rana's uh, book, The Cell's Design. And I thought that this, uh, this really quick um, statement of it really captures what William Paley is saying. So I'll just, re- I'll just read this and then I'll talk about what William Paley was getting at with his design argument. So, uh, this argument says, watches display design, two, watches are the product of a watchmaker. Similarly, three, organisms display design, four, therefore, organisms are the product of a creator. And that's basically what William Paley was saying. So, if you read his natural theology, when he gets to the portion where he gives his watchmaker argument, he talks about how... Um, if you were walking in a field and you stubbed your toe on a, on a stone or, or just whatever, and it caused you to look down and you saw a watch sitting in the field, you wouldn't assume that the watch was there for natural reasons, like it just grew in the field, right? You would pick up the watch. If you didn't know what a watch was, let's say you didn't even know what a watch was for whatever reason, um, if you didn't know what a watch was but you saw this watch, you could tell that it was put together for a specific reason, and it seemed to it seemed to have a purpose and was was meaningful in several different ways. Um, and and William Paley says, you know, because it's so it's so complex, and and you can tell that just the way it was made that this isn't the kind of thing that just forms by itself. And uh, and and William Paley says, but in the same way, when we look out in nature we see so many things that are really complex and are meaningful, and uh, these don't seem to be the product of just um, just you know, blind mother nature and the, the laws of nature. So, so um, just, but just like we would infer design when we saw the watch in the field, so also we should infer design when we look out in nature and see all these complex systems and, and conclude that there's a, a designer of the universe outside the universe. Um, and, you know, after making this analogy in natural theology, Paley goes on to describe the structure of eyes, ears, skeletal systems, um, muscle systems, the properties of fish, birds, insects, plants, and, and all sorts of things. He just kind of, he sets that up, he, he uses that to set up uh, his description of all these things. And he's making the point that uh, it seems like there is a designer of, of our natural world. So, so, but having said all this, you know, this is, this is right before uh, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution becomes really popular. And uh, like I said, natural theology by William Paley was required reading at Cambridge for a, the longest time. And in fact, 
Charles Darwin actually read natural theology when he was in, when he was going through school. But um, uh, William Paley's watchmaker analogy uh, is eventually believed to be kind of blown out of the water by the theory of evolution, which a lot of people believed um, was a way to explain uh, how uh, biological systems uh, were able to form by natural processes, okay? Um, so, for the longest time, William Paley's argument fell out of favor and it has been actually ridiculed a lot. Um, still ridiculed to this day. I mean, well, I don't know. A lot of arguments for God's existence, people who don't know what they're doing, ridicule it. Um, but I personally, I believe, and I, th I'm, I think there's a, a good consensus on this uh, uh, with um, among apologists, and and I don't think it's just because we're all biased and and want it to be the case. That it, it really seems to be a lot of this. It really seems compelling to me. I think William Paley's design argument is making a comeback, and it's because of some advances uh, that people have made in science and and some things that people have have been pointing out uh, with how complex some systems are. So what's happening is that, um, especially out of the intelligent design community, um, scholars like William Densky, um, Michael Behe, uh, and, and, and several others uh, coming out of the um, design, intelligent design community are pointing out these systems in nature that don't seem to be, uh, that seem to be too complex to, to just have been uh, created through, or excuse me, formed um, uh, through evolutionary processes alone, okay? Uh, and, and I just mentioned Michael Behe. Uh, he has come up with this uh, idea of uh, this, this concept he calls irreducible complexity. Uh, if you haven't already, I, I highly recommend you read Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution by um, Michael Behe, okay? It's B-E-H-E. And... Um, in this, now this was his first. He's actually come out with another book since then. I, I can't think of the name right now, but um, uh, and and it's I've heard it's just as good um, as his first one. Now, um, in this book, he talks about, like I said, what he calls irreducible complexity. And uh, let me just read the the definition of this term here. So, irreducible complexity is. A system exhibits irreducible complexity provided it is composed of several well-matched interacting parts, each of which is indispensable to maintaining the system's basic function. Uh, in, in his book, um, Darwin's Black Box, Behe talks a lot. Uh, it, it's, it's funny because he usually talks about like a mouse trap. And I don't just mean like a, a I mean, you can think of like the mouse traps we usually think of with the spring and the part where you put the peanut butter or the cheese. Uh, but he talks about not only mouse traps like that, but like the really intricate ones like you see in the cartoons um, where, you know, someone might hit a string and then that triggers something and it, and it goes on and on. Uh, he, that's what Behe is talking about. He's arguing that there's systems in nature that are really complex such that they have like many different interlo interacting interlocking parts uh, that are needed all simultaneously for a, a biological system to work. But the problem is 
uh, the, the, with irreducible complexity is that you can't just form these one thing at a time, okay? You, they need to all come into place all at once or the system's not going to work. But uh, what he talks about is how you can't get um, you can't get these systems in a stepwise fashion that you would uh, if you were if you were just postulating the normal uh, evolutionary processes where you know with um, uh, because of random mutations one thing happens and then it's selected for because it has an advantage and then another thing uh, happens through another. Uh, a mutation and that gets selected for D- does that make sense so like uh, one thing he definitely pointed out was um, what's called a bacterial flagellum I believe that's how you say it bacterial flagellum and it's uh, bacterial flagella if it's uh, plural but anyways um, bacterial flagella has if you ever see a picture of it it's just it looks like uh, it looks like some kind of mechanical motor almost. But bacterial flagella, flagellum is uh, uh, this biological system that makes it so... Um, it, it's it's usually... A lot of times it's for the little cells that's, that kind of have to make themselves swim. The little... The, the, they're closer to like single-celled organisms. And what happens is the flagellum will have a, a whip on the end of it, a filament... Um, but that thing needs to go in all sorts of directions. So uh, it's attached to it's attached to the cell, but in between the the filament and the cell, there's all sorts of things. And and uh, if you look at the pictures, it, it lists the different uh, names for everything. So the flag- the filaments attached to a a hook and a junction, and that's that goes into an L ring, a rod, a P ring, a stator. I mean. Um, and, and when you look, and what happens is all of these things are needed for the whip to work and for it to be able to um, help the cell move. And what Behe points out is that you can't just, um, uh, this couldn't happen in a stepwise fashion from, uh, from evolution. Because if you have just, you need all of it all at once for the entire system to work. If you just have one part of the system, it's going to be worthless. So uh, even if by chance uh, one of these things uh, through a genetic mutation uh, uh, all of a sudden was added to the cell, uh, it's those one thing isn't going to produce uh, the function that the entire system is, is playing. So it's just going to be this worthless one little part you know, so if the if the cell were to to produce a rod by itself, or a P ring by itself, or an L ring, those things by themselves are going to be worthless. So it's not actually going to provide an evolutionary advantage. So it's not going to get selected for. So this is so it's it's like a catch twenty two. You need everything all at once to make the system work and for it to have an advantage, but you can't get that in a stepwise fashion. So that's what Behe is talking about with irreducible complexity. He talked about uh, several other things uh, in his book. He talked about the human eye. Another one that I thought was interesting, and he goes way more in depth, obviously, in all these all these topics in uh, in his book, um, Darwin's Black Box. But another one he talked about was blood clotting. This was another thing that couldn't evolve in a stepwise fashion because, um, you know, 
I think a lot of us probably take blood clotting for for um, for granted, right? You get cut and you get a scab there uh, if it if it bled a lot. Um, you know, blood clotting just seems to be kind of a simple thing. But uh, Behe mentions that there's actually several uh, interacting parts that go into making blood clotting possible. So, for example, there's two separate ways that, that there's obviously some really important things with blood clotting, right? And when you get cut, uh, your body not only tells your blood to clot, but it also has to tell your blood to clot in a certain place. <laughs> and those, and that's not just something that just comes uh, in one package, right? There's two, actually two different ways that your body has to do that. And what Behe was saying is if you evolve either one of those, you're going to be dead. Uh, so if, you're, if an organism by a mutation evolves the ability to clot, but it hasn't evolved the ability to tell the blood where to clot, if the organism got cut somewhere, that's going to send the signal for the blood to clot. But since it hasn't got the ability to tell it where to do it, it'll either do it in random places so it'll die, or the entire organism will clot all at once and it'll die. Uh, you, you know, or, or if it's told where to clot but it won't clot, then it's still going to die. So it needs to simultaneously uh, evolve the ability to both make the blood clot and the clot where, in, where it's told to clot, where it needs to be clot. So... Uh, it's actually a lot more complex when you start to think about it. And he actually explains like two or three more things than that involved with blood clotting. And he also talks about human eyes and other things. And he argues that they're irreducibly complex. So it needs, so it, 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 it really helps you um, make that design inference that there had to be a designer of, of these uh, systems because it it's, can't just be explainable in terms of, uh, uh, in natural terms of, uh, stepwise evolutionary processes. Now, having said all this, uh, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a biologist. Um, I'm, I don't know biochemistry. Uh, these things have been debated. You know, this is just a introductory lecture where I just talk about different design arguments. So I'm not getting into the real deep part of this. I'm just kind of showing you what's happening. Um, it, again, if I, if I, if, um, if the, opportunity ever arose maybe I could go into these arguments at a at a higher level um, now oh another thing it's not just Behe that's been doing this I enjoyed some arguments that I read in uh, uh, Fazal Rana if you've ever heard of Fazal Rana he's uh, he he works at um, reasons to believe which is a uh, uh, science faith organization um, founded by uh, Hugh Ross. And Fazal Rana wrote a book called The Cell's Design, How Chemistry Reveals the Creator's Artistry. And in this book, he actually, and that's where I got that formulation of William Paley's watch argument. Fazal Rana argues that the watch argument, the watch analogy is making a comeback. And in, in, in that book, um, The Cell's Design, Rana points out that there are these chicken and egg systems that create these uh, catch-22 problems when determining where, how they were able to um, arise naturally. 
Um, in that book, he discusses uh, at least three. Bi- he discusses a lot in that book, and it and it gets uh, pretty technical pretty quick, just like Behe's. But he he talks about three biological processes that it, that um, that exhibit this catch twenty two scenario, including uh, DNA replication, protein synthesis, and protein folding. Uh, one that I thought was especially interesting was the DNA replication. So. He, he pointed out that before a cell can divide into two cells, um, a copy of the cell's DNA is made, right? And, but DNA is thought of, so DNA is thought of as a self-replicating molecule because it can copy itself. But the problem is that DNA can't replicate without proteins. Um, the proteins are what replicate DNA, but DNA is needed to make proteins, so you can't have one without the other. Um, a functioning protein can't form without the instructions in the DNA, and DNA can't be made without protein. So the question is, so it's really like this chicken and the egg scenario. Which came first, the protein or the DNA? You can't make protein without DNA, and you can't, uh, you can't have DNA without, you know, it goes both ways. You need the DNA for the instructions for the protein, but you can't make the DNA without the protein. So the question is, how, how does all that work? And it doesn't seem to be uh, possible for it to, to be made naturally because you've got to have both at the same time. And, um, and it just is another thing in nature that points to a designer. Okay, so that's Aquinas' fifth way, uh, William Paley's watchmaker argument. That's just a taste of how what those arguments are about and uh, how they're defended. Now, in the next lecture, I'm going to specifically explain in detail and show you how it's defended the um, contemporary fine-tuning argument. This is an argument that especially I've seen, I, I think there's other philosophers who have defended it more than he does, but, as, but William Lane Craig has defended this argument, especially the way that I'll show you it's formulated and he's done that in his books uh, On Guard and Reasonable Faith, which I usually uh, discuss and, and emphasize. Um, but yeah, if you haven't heard of William Lane Craig, he's an American Protestant apologist, Christian apologist, philosopher, and theologian. Um, he's especially known for his defense of the Kalam argument, like I said in the last lecture. Um, here's how he formulates the argument in his works. So this is the uh, this is William Lane Craig's fine tuning argument, and he says the fine tuning of the universe. This is the first premise: the fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two: it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three: therefore, it is due to design. And I wasn't going to say too much about this in this lecture because I'm going to defend this and explain this fully in the next one. But just to give a brief overview of it, you know, you see the first premise says, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. This uses a concept called the fine, fine-tuning, and, and it's talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. And when it, when it talks about fine-tuning, it's talking about how uh, many of the laws of nature and other things in the universe have these what's called cosmological constants and it's just these variables in the um, uh, in the way that we uh, explain the laws so uh, when you exp- when you list out how a law works mathematically it'll have this constant which is just this value in it 
And and what happens is when you look at it, it, it looks like all these there's nothing that determines what these constants ought to be. They just are what they are. Uh, but when you w- scientists have studied it and they realize that if the constants were a little bit higher, a little bit lower, um, then it would make that one of those forces, one of those laws, such that um, it would uh, make it so that life wouldn't be possible in the universe. And premise one is talking about the fine-tuning of the universe, and it's saying that is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. And premise two says it's not due to physical necessity or chance. Um, They point out that um, there's nothing that makes it, there's nothing about the laws of nature, and there's nothing about the laws themselves that determine that these constants should be at the level that they are, uh, determining that, or entailing that life would be in the universe. Uh, there's, so it's not due to physical necessity, and then they just talk about how improbable it is in the chance portion. So they say it's not due to chance. And then so they, they argue that the the universe, whoever set up the, con- the, the constants themselves and uh, whoever's responsible for the laws of nature, um, well, excuse me, because... Because this is not due to physical necessity or chance, the only thing it left was is design. So they're saying that these constants must be the product of a designer. So that's really that's how that argument works. Uh, before I go on to that, though, I just um, this is just an example, and you know I don't know maybe this could. Well, I'll just let I'll just let all of you decide. So I've got a picture here of a, an insect. A plant hopping insect uh, named uh, Issus coleoptratus. <laughs> it's a plant hopping insect. If you haven't seen pictures of this, if you're listening to this on a on a podcast, you need to um, you need to uh, uh, Google this a plant hopping insect. Uh, Coleo coleoptratus. Um, these insects, uh, if you look at a zoomed in view of their joints. They're plant hopping insects. They do a lot of hopping. And these things, it really is amazing. It looks like they've, I mean, they literally have gears uh, at the joints of their legs that help them, from what I understand, uh, jump from plant to plant. And If you see the picture, I mean, I don't want to just, you know, be all incredulous and say there's just absolutely no way that evolution could produce this. But when you look at it, I mean, it just looks, it just literally looks like gears. (laughs) So, um, you know, take it for what it is. It's just one of those amazing things in nature. Um, I, uh, I, I first saw a picture of this insect uh, I'm going to kind of do a shameless plug here, but I first saw uh, this insect was first brought to my attention. Um, I contributed to a book called God and the World of Insects, which was edited by Josh Shoemaker uh, and Gary Branis. And um, Josh and Gary are, are both big in the, uh, in the entomology world. Uh, that's their fields. And um, they invited me to uh, write a chapter for this book, God in the World of Insects. 
And if you are interested in insects, if you're interested in intelligent design, I do highly recommend this book because that's what it's all about. It's just showing all these design and and uh, amazing things in insects that they think point to a creator. But yeah, I, I saw this and I just couldn't believe it. I, re- I mean, it just it looks to me like, like it definitely was designed, but I'm probably partial. But um, but anyways, I just think this is neat, so I thought I would show everybody. Um, but that's 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 all I was going to talk about for this lecture. So again, I just wanted to remind you of these uh, reflection questions. The first one is: Do you think God? Excuse me. Do you think design arguments commit the God of the gaps fallacy? What about cosmological arguments? And two: Does fine tuning in the universe increase the amount of faith needed to believe the universe began from nothing and caused? Why or why not? Now I'm going to talk more about the fine tuning in the next lecture. So you might want to be you might want to continue thinking about that. As for the God of the Gaps fallacy, I actually thought, forgot to mention that. Now, the God of the Gaps fallacy is where um, a theist might see something and conclude that God did it, whether it's uh, the conclusion of a cosmological argument, maybe the conclusion of a design argument. Okay. God of the Gaps fallacy is when someone says, well, you what you're basically doing is you don't understand this natural system, so you're just throwing in God in, in the gaps of your knowledge there. Um, I, I forgot to mention this while I was talking about, uh, especially William Paley's watchmaker argument. Someone might say, well, you're just using God of the gaps reasoning whenever you make these design arguments. But, um, I just wanted to mention really quickly that intelligent design, um, proponents like Michael Behe and others, they're not arguing to God's existence or to, excuse me, they're not arguing to a designer of these systems uh, from their ignorance, by the way. They're not saying, well, we don't know what's happening, therefore it must be God. They're arguing to a designer from what they do know, right? Because they're not just saying, well, we don't know how this could have happened. What they're saying is that given evolutionary theory and the way it works, um, this couldn't have happened that way because we know how that works and what they're saying is, this couldn't have happened that way. So it doesn't commit the God of the gaps fallacy because they're arguing from what they do know, not from what they don't know. So, I mean, you know, obviously people can argue this back and forth. And like I said, we're just, we're just brushing through these to give you an idea of what design arguments are all about. Um, but, you know, people could argue for that. But I, I think the, the, the best answer for it usually is you whether it is design arguments or cosmological arguments, it's not God of the gaps because we are arguing from what we, from what we do know, not from what we don't know. But anyways, um, those are, yeah, just those are the reflection questions. I was going to leave you with another quote from Frank Turek. Um, uh, we're kind of sticking, I, I stick with the same quote for a handful of lectures. It's not like the Bible passages where I change those at every two. So this is pretty much the same one. Uh, we'll, we'll be moving on to another one, I think, when we get into moral arguments. But again, here's here's our quote from uh, Frank Turek. I, st- I still enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, this is from his Stealing from God, page 26. This created and fine-tuned universe, along with the orderly cause-and-effect nature of reality, are best explained by an intelligent being with attributes remarkably congruent to the God of the Bible. And uh, like always, I wanted to um, mention that... Uh, if you are interested in apologetics, you want to go deeper, uh, you can check out S. Southern Evangelical Seminary. 
Um, it's not just a seminary, it's also a Bible college, so you can not only get certificates and undergraduate degrees there, you can also get a master's degree and even go all the way up to a Ph.D. or a doctor of ministry. Um, they uh, were pretty much uh, forged out of the uh, distance learning environment. They obviously also have classes uh, there in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they're based, um, but... Uh, but they also they they are very good at distance learning, and they have all these degrees set up to do online. So check them out if you are interested in that. Also, don't forget that you can go to their website and get they have a free resource if you click on the media if you uh, hover over the media tab, and then go down and click on the Why Trust the God of the Bible link. It will take you to a free ebook. Um, PDF ebook that's about uh, 40 or 50 pages, which which get, will give you an awesome free resource that gives you evidence uh, for things similar to what we've been talking about. Um, also, uh, don't forget, uh, I teach, I t- these lectures are coming from a course I teach at Kingdom Preparatory Academy um, every other spring. I teach it to um, juniors and seniors, and I just always like to, uh, to, to promote Kingdom Preparatory Academy, it's a classical school in Lubbock, Texas. It goes all the way from pre-K to twelfth uh, grade, and it's a university model system. So students usually only go to school from Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It starts to get a little different when you get into high school, a little more complex. But yeah, uh, my two boys go there, and we love it. And I uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to go anywhere else. So. If you're interested in this, I would you know, go to their website, uh, Google Kingdom Preparatory Academy, Lubbock. Um, but that's it for this lecture. And in our next lecture, I'm going to defend the argument from fine-tuning from William Lane Craig. So I hope to see you there, and I hope you uh, have a blessed week.